All right, hi everybody, and welcome to this special episode of We Gotta Talk. We do this thing sometimes where when big world events are happening, we like to bring in some perspective and some information. So as many of you know, my background is in news and I have a real passion for making sure that people are engaged and informed on a really basic level about what's happening. As Americans, we are guilty of hiding in our own world in many respects. And um, we just can't do that anymore and all the time. The world stage is getting uh, more disruptive in many ways. And I really am passionate about making sure that we all can understand what's happening in other parts of the world so that not necessarily we can agree on what's happening or what we should do next, but so we can have reasons for believing what we do and truly understand the depth of nuance in some of these issues. So today I'm so, so grateful to welcome Joan Davison, who is our guest. She is a political professor of political science at Rollins College, and her research is focused on ethnic and religious politics. And Joan and I have spent the past 10 minutes of prep talking about essentially the world map in Eastern Europe. And I'm like, Joan, tell me where all of these are. As Americans, Joan, we are guilty, as I mentioned just moments ago, of being isolationist, whether it's men mentally in our own sort of personal histories or even when it comes to political policy. So tell us why people need to care and understand about what's happening between Russia and Ukraine right now. People need to care about what's happening between Russia and Ukraine for two reasons. First, I would focus on Russia. Russia um, currently, under President Putin, has campaigned for a number of years. And when I say campaigned, I mean used various subversive techniques to, to try to disrupt democracy in the West, interfering in elections, for example, not only the U.S. election, but elections throughout Europe. Um, also trying to disrupt democracies by creating greater polarization so that populations in some democratic countries even question the value of having individual rights or having liberal democracies. And they do that through disinformation campaigns. So I think that, you know, in general, Russia's actions have been, one, to disrupt democracy, and two, to divide the West, to divide the European Union, to divide NATO, so that Russian influence might better kind of eke into these regions if, if they are divided. The, the other, the flip side then is that Ukraine um, is not... I would say a vital interest to the US, but it is a significant interest because it is a European democracy. And to the extent that the US believes Europe is critical to our welfare, our well being, you know, as a trade partner. Um, and also, it's not only a European state, but it's a demo democratic state. Now, some Americans might conclude that it's irrelevant whether or not the world's primarily democratic or authoritarian. But I, I would argue that many people believe that it's easier for the U.S. and American businesses to operate around the world if you have the rule of law, if you have low levels of corruption, if you have high levels of um, transparency, if you if contracts are enforced, and all these tend to be associated with democracies, far more so than with authoritarian systems. To say nothing of the fact that fewer people seem to die on a mass scale and suffer 
in extreme injustices, right? It's also right. a business move for lack of a better term. You know, I encourage anybody to just go stare at a map for a while. Um, I don't know why, maybe this is the school that I went to, but when I look at, at the map and you're talking about Europe as essentially a buffer yes. zone between us, and I hate to say this, Joan, but I'm going to the bad guys, um, Russia, China, and I'm not saying the citizens are bad, and I'm not saying that there isn't good and hopefully peaceful relations between us in the future, but they are a critical zone. Um, and many people are concerned that what's happening in Ukraine and Russia right now will sort of start a, a toppling effect of um, impact. Do you foresee that happening? Yes. Let me comment on one point you just made, because I do think it's fascinating. And anyone listening might want to pull up a map that looks at Russia and Europe, because it's very startling the extent to which all of Europe is just appears to be a small peninsula on this great landmass of Russia. So, you know, th this it's notion- scary, It really is scary to me. Like the scale, the massive land scale of Russia and China put together. I mean, there, there, it is just this tiny little circle or, you know, like you said, peninsula next to this massive, massive land. Right, exactly. And so I think, I think the concern is this, that, um, if the United States, along with its European allies, its NATO allies, um, do not have some type of show of support for the Ukrainians and democracy, and do not try to put President Putin and the Russian leadership in a position where they will reconsider doing this again, then the fact that they do it successfully once might embolden them to do it elsewhere. For example, in the Baltic Northern Republics of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which are indeed NATO members, and the other NATO states have been transferring battalions and troops to those countries. So, and, and according to the NATO treaty, Article 5 requires the other members to come to the defense of any country that's attacked. So if one of those were attacked, the other members would be required by treaty to come. Now, if they opted not to come, well, I think that's the end of NATO. Hmm. The end of the alliance that was meant, that was created um, to unite Europe, to give the US a role in Europe, a treaty role, a formal legal role, and to keep the Soviet Union out of Western Europe initially, and now and today Central Europe and as well. I think I'm asking the question a lot of people are, which is, are sanctions enough? They don't feel like enough. I know that's a hawkish sort of view of things, and I know there are plenty of Americans. In fact, I did a poll on Instagram, and over half of the people responded, American citizens, not anybody, you know, mm -hmm. with any special position of power, but they think we need to stay the heck out of there. Um, so I may not be representing the entirety of the popular opinion here, but I feel like sanctions are not cutting the mustard right now, Joan. Okay. Well, and and... To an extent, I, I concur with you, and I share that um, perspective. Let me say this, though. There are two different purposes to sanctions. One is to deter a behavior. The second is to punish a behavior. And I think that um, when you're talking about powerful states like Russia, 
you primarily are in you primarily act to punish rather than deter if you know years ago sanctions were used for example against uganda during the leadership of edmn and um you know there it could be a deterrent behavior um for decades they were applied to south africa and you know it was essentially a punishment which under the um strain of that punishment, eventually they changed their regime. So in terms of punishing Russia, sanctions will take a very long time to work. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like putting the pot on simmer, right? It just doesn't feel like enough quickly enough. Well, there are, well, let me, I think you're correct. It's not enough quickly enough if one's goal or objective is to save Ukraine. I'm okay. not sure. I I think that's not the objective. Um, I think it's partially not the objective because the United States, one, as I said, does not see Ukraine as a vital interest. It's significant, but not vital, but but nor do our NATO allies. And I think a lot of President Biden's focus in his foreign policy has been to rebuild the alliance and find agreements. So these sanctions are significant. Russia engages in about billion of trade a day, global trade. 40 billion of that is in American dollars. He's not going to be able to use American dollars. Russians cannot use American dollars any longer for trade. So they've got to find a different currency. Well, people don't want rubles. They're not really a global currency. And the ruble is declining in value. So so that is a powerful sanction. Additionally, about 40% of Russian exports go to the European Union. The European Union is going to cut back purchases significantly. So I I do think the sanctions are critical. However, there are some other actions which the U.S. and its NATO allies are taking primarily, um, and they've been doing this even under President Trump, they started doing this, uh, sending more military equipment to Ukraine. Not only okay, not only sending military equipment. The U.S. has committed another two hundred million dollars worth. Our allies in Europe have committed another six hundred and fifty million dollars worth of weapons. So that's about a billion total. However, the reality is that's not enough. That's enough to maybe um, hold off Russia a little bit, or maybe mount an insurgency after the Russians conquer the capital, probably in the next 24 hours. But it's not enough to stop Russia. Um, The other thing I would suggest, though, um, is that down the road, there are other options. And you don't want to use all your options at once. One option, and, and I, before we came on, I was looking to see if the NATO summit Um, had concluded yet and had issued a concluding statement. There's a summit of the leaders of the 30 NATO members today going on. And and that had not happened. They had the opening statements online, but not the closing. But I think another option here, which is a very powerful option, is to move from sanctions to embargoes. And one thing NATO could do is that Turkey, which is a NATO member, could close the straits to Russian shipping so that Russia's um, 
naval facility in Crimea, which is part of Ukraine that they took back in 2014, their ships could not exit to the Mediterranean if they can't go through the Turkish Straits. Likewise, Denmark, a NATO ally, could close the entrance and exit for the Russians to the Baltic Sea. Now, this would up it without a direct military confrontation. What I heard you say a couple of minutes ago, initially answering the question, and this is my this is what I'm hearing, and it kind of is insane, is they're not rich or powerful enough to save their lives. And yet they're humans desiring a democracy. And this isn't critical of your answer, of course. It's just, maybe it's the bleeding heart liberal in me. Like, why do we only see, Joan, okay. human lives as currency in our giant chess game of a, I don't know. And again, I said this, We were. I was talking, I have two friends that are um, both from Europe, one from Poland, one from Italy, and just talking about this issue with them from a world perspective. It's very clear that where you're born, obviously, determines mm -hmm. how you believe countries should interact in these situations. And I think Americans believe in the goodness of democracy. And that's not true. A lot of young people don't. I personally do. I love democracy, and I feel like um, our capitalist society has, for the most part, served many people well, mm -hmm. personally and professionally. So it is really hard for me as someone who believes in the goodness of the system and sees a people struggling that we can't do anything or we can't look at them beyond anything but human capital, essentially, to say nothing of the security assistance that we had promised them if they denuclearized. So it right. also feels like a broken promise. Well, let me say one thing first about... Um, you mentioned a poll and, you know, that Americans don't want to go to war. This is part of the problem for President Biden, who, in fact, you know, was criticized in the U.S. as well as in Europe for pulling out of Afghanistan about a month early. Right. So um, but yet people don't want to go to war. He certainly wants to focus upon a domestic agenda, build back better. Right. COVID. His interest is not in fighting another war. That's very, very clear. We've just exited 20 years of war. Yeah. So, however, having said that, it's interesting because there's a study that's about five, ten, five, six, seven years old now, where they asked experts, people who study war, people who study also just war, and they ask political scientists, a couple hundred, to classify various wars, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the invasion of Grenada, bombing of Libya, et cetera, Iraq, both Iraq wars, um, Afghanistan, to, to, to consider, to look at these and to tell us whether or not they thought they were a just war. And they also asked the political scientists to self-identify as a, either being conservative or liberal. And, and they did. And the interesting thing is this, what the political scientists agreed upon, whether they were conservative or liberal, because they disagreed on some wars being just or not. You, you know, conservative political scientists were more inclined to see perhaps Vietnam as a just war, as a war against communism, whereas liberal political scientists might not be. Liberal political scientists might be more inclined to see going into Bosnia um, as 
or Bosnia is a bit, very bad example, but going to Grenada, right, which President Reagan did as, you know, not being a justifiable war to stop the building of an air, airstrip there by the Soviet Union at that point in time. But what they agreed on was this, that it is always a just war. And in that sense, I think they would see it as a war that ought to be fought, a war of necessity rather than a war of choice. It is always a just war if the U.S. is attacked. So Pearl Harbor and 9-11 made World War II and um, the war against Afghanistan just wars. Additionally, they agreed that it was always a just war if a genocide is being committed or egregious human rights violations. So in terms of Ukraine, um, what I'm, I mean, I don't want to see a genocide there or just, you know, atrocities committed. But I believe that if Putin went that direction, that then we would see the United States push harder for a military response because the American public would not want a genocide in Ukraine. American experts would see it justifiable to respond to some kind of genocide there. Now, at the same time, though, we've got to understand that uh, Russia is the second greatest military power in the world after the United States. China spends more currently on its military than Russia. Russia is a declining military power, but nevertheless, it has, it's the only country in the world that has nuclear weapons in the numbers which the United States does. And speaking of nuclear weapons, you raised the very good point, the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, where President Clinton and President Yeltsin of uh, Russia at that time convinced Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons. It would be better for peace in Europe um, and relationships moving forward if there were fewer nuclear powers. At the end of the Soviet Union, the Soviets had weapons stationed not only in Russia, but also Belarus, which was part of the Soviet Union, Ukraine, part of the Soviet Union, and Kazakhstan, part of the Soviet Union. The U.S. thought it would be preferable if there are fewer nuclear powers. Um, less likely somebody would use them if there are fewer. So the U.S. pushed um, Ukraine to give up their nuclear weapons, their intercontinental ballistic missiles, their warheads, and their technology. At that point, they were the third strongest nuclear power in the world, and they gave them up. And I think that um, you are correct to say that many people felt that there was at least or still feel an implied security commitment by the U.S. to Ukraine in case Russia attacked. Because as part of that agreement, Russia at that time promised, in fact, not to try to change the, its borders with Ukraine through military force and to respect Ukraine's independence. So obviously that treaty has been broken. But, you know, if we're thinking about President Putin, President Putin has broken all kinds of international law. He's a bad dude, Joan. He is a bad dude. He is. Oh he is. I mean, he is. 
that's a whole separate conversation. I mean, I don't know how world leaders who are forced to interact with him don't just, I mean, he's a terrifying, he cuts a terrifying figure and yet he is still in power and remains in power. I mean, I don't know as again, as an American confusing to me that someone can be at the helm of a reign of terror for so long, Mm -hmm. but that's a separate discussion. So anyhow, go on. Yes. So, so I do think that there is, um, I would say a great uneasiness that, you know, there, there seemed to be this implicit commitment to Ukraine, which now is not being fulfilled. Um, at the same time, do we want the U.S. and the Russians fighting one another directly? Um, I, one, one issue which I like to challenge people with, and I think all the listeners ought to think about this point, um, we're uncertain exactly how to determine the precise amount Russia spends on its military a year. But it's somewhere between about 70 billion and 140 billion. It depends on how you value various purchases and weapon systems and payments. Um, but so say many analysts say 70 billion. Some say as much as 140. The U.S. spends 700 billion, ten times that. So, so my question is that I think listeners need to think about is if we're spending 700 billion a year on our military, and yet we conclude that we can we cannot or ought not or should not engage militarily with Russia. Then after it has attacked a democratic European state, then I think the question listeners ought to think about is, should we be spending 700 billion? I mean, what what will, you know, bring us to war? Um, What are what interest will we defend? Is it only existential if the U.S. is attacked? Will we defend other states in Europe who are NATO allies? So I think that, you know, do we need to spend 700 billion? It's, you know, it's an interesting point. I think it's inextricably tied to people's sense of patriotism and how we drive politics domestically and the leaders we put in power, because I'm as a citizen looking at what's playing out in Washington. And I feel like a full 50% of the population at any given time these days feels like their beliefs are not being represented. feels like their version of patriotism or what we need to do or don't do is not being represented in Washington. And that goes for the Trump era and the Biden era. I don't know historically if the, I'm sure there are other points in American history where people have felt this divided or this unsure about the the future of things, but I think we don't act on a world stage because we don't have our shit together, for lack of a better term, here. And all you that poll on Instagram again, obviously a super super informal thing, but it's very reflective to me of how confused we all are. Whereas in eras past, and I know it was a direct provocation, as you said, with Pearl Harbor, but in World War II and even with 9-11, no one questioned their patriotism or America's role on the world stage or what we wanted to do to help other people. It felt very, maybe it was ignorant, but it felt like a time of strange unity. Whereas today we have people who are just so vehemently against each other's politics here that, of course, you know, we're putting leaders in there. Nothing's going to get done in one direction or another because we're so divided at the bottom level, at the bottom of the Mm -hmm. food pyramid, so to speak. I don't know. That's just it's just 
it's crazy to me how, um, I don't know, I'm hearing such strong opinions that from one group, you know, on social media, as we interact about this topic, about how they feel that Biden is just being a wimp. And on the other hand, they're like, finally, we're taking care of what we need to take care of at home before we put our yeah. troops and our people out anywhere else. I, I um, don't want to put too much blame on President Biden um, or prior to Biden, um, President Trump or Obama or George W. Bush. And the reason I say that is because I believe Congress fundamentally, whether it's a Democratic Congress or a Republican Congress or a split Congress, Congress holds the ultimate power when it comes to the defense budget as well as declaring wars. And, and Congress has decided that those particular policy decisions are very dangerous to make. Mm -hmm. because You can be very unpopular, and especially right. if you're wrong. So, so Congress has deferred to the president and sits back and then criticizes. And it's not just Biden, it's every president. The president's criticized, yeah. but yet Congress, where the constitutional power is placed for decisions of raising an army, raising a navy, most people don't realize the constitution only provides for the army to be budgeted for, for two years at a point at a time, because we did not want to have at our founding a standing army because the standing army could be used against the people. So even if it's made up of the people, I'm confused. There yeah, was well, well I mean, at that point in time, right. I mean, yeah, it was different. At the founding people were accustomed to being subjects, not citizens. Sure. Sure. Uh-huh. And, okay. and, and so, you know, Congress has this power and Congress could be doing a lot. And under the Obama administration, Obama asked Congress, will you give me a resolution of support to go into Syria? Congress didn't want to touch it. Because they're concerned, Joan, about their jobs in Washington. I mean, like, it's dirty and gross. I feel like a group of regular Mr. and Mrs. Smiths could run the country better. This is so like annoying for lack yeah, of a and, and I think you're correct that the country's become more polarized and disagrees uh, more on these issues. But the other point is that if you do an ideological map of Congress and compare it to an ideological map of the American public, Congress is more polarized than the public. And that's because of that's because of our primary system. People who are diehard Republicans, and often that means more at the Republican extreme, turn out and vote in the Republican primaries, the same in the Democratic. So you tend to get candidates who are more extreme coming through the primaries, winning them, and then running for election. So rather than the moderate Republicans and the moderate Democrats, you have people who tend to be more extreme often. And it used to be the case, right. you know, if you go back to the 1960s, for example, um, and, the, and there were problems with this, but the party leadership would pick the candidates. Primaries did not pick the candidates. They might help inform, but they did not pick the candidates. Now, 
can I hop in with a thing with a yeah. very quick question here? And I know we're like kind of veering back. Yes, yes. Health, and we will get back to Ukraine and Russia, but I do want to talk about this. And then I also want to schedule another yes. interview to do more of a deep dive. But you're using the term moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats. The running joke on this show is that I'm a raging moderate. Is that <laughs> I, I do, you know, you have to pick a party for the primary. So it's not like I'm not registered. Yeah. I'm not registered independent yet. But why is the word moderate such a bad word in the world of politics today. You are, you hear all of the, you read all these op-eds, you listen to all these podcasts about how moderate Democrats are ruining. Well, well look at Liz Cheney. Right. What about her? Huh? Yeah. What about her? Yeah. Tell me. Well, tell I mean that she, because she voted against, spoke against Trump. Oh yeah. Yeah. Her participation. Yeah. In the consequences. But like, uh, that's where the, the truth lies in the middle yes. to me. So I don't know. It's just... We're, yes. we're considered like a scourge on the American public because, you know, there are people who can sort of see both sides of an issue. But it's curious that that opinion is yeah. not. Well, some credit. some people also believe that if you're whether we're talking about Republicans or Democrats, mm -hmm. but Republicans believe that all Republicans have to get on board and support this Republican leader. Right. Or They're more likely to traitor. And we can understand if you're a Democrat and oppose the Republican leader. But if you're a Republican and speak against the leadership, you know, that is just unacceptable. You're a traitor. You're not the opposition. You're a traitor. And, and so this is why I think the this notion of trying to be moderate and work across the aisles has, um, you know, is, is just condemned. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's awful. I hope there I hope there's a future where there's a place for people mm -hmm. like that in Washington. It just doesn't seem like the other way is working. That's right. all I'm saying. Okay, let's quickly turn back okay, to back to Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And can I have you back on another episode? <laughs> okay, sure. Um, okay, so what would just to kind of wrap things up here and to kind of look ahead? Yes. What do you think as we look ahead? We're recording this on the 25th of February. So just for anyone who's listening beyond this, this may be untimely if you're mm -hmm. listening on this date. But what would it take for Americans to get in America to get involved militarily? And do you think, based on what we've seen in Ukraine and Russia right now, that that's a, a possibility? And at what percent chance do you put it? Percent chance. I would say it's less than 50% chance. Okay. Even if there's a genocide there. So I believe the most likely way in which the U.S. would become involved militarily in NATO, become involved, is if there's a genocide. Now, of course, because... U.S. and NATO did go to Bosnia and Kosovo under, because of, especially Kosovo, because of fears of a genocide. So I, I think that's the most compelling reason. However, and maybe I should have mentioned this when we were talking about sanctions and what countries are doing or not doing. Um, I would want Ukrainians to stay in Ukraine and fight and have an insurgency. However, what we're seeing right now is many Ukrainians leaving the country because they don't want to live under a Russian authoritarianism. They want democracy, they want freedom, they want to be part of Europe. And what I do have to say is at least at this point, I think um, uplifting, 
is that the Polish border is open and taking mm -hmm. refugees from Ukraine right now. Right. And so I think it's really important that the the border with Romania, that refugees can flow in. So those would be the two major countries, I think, that would receive it. And they're both NATO members. Uh, they're both members of the European Union. And the rest of Europe would have to embrace those people. So so some people make the argument about um, there. there's this provision or this resolution that came out of the United Nations in 2005. It's called the um, resolution or the responsibility to protect that under, you know, extraordinary circumstances, you're not interfering in another country. If you're act, you're protecting people. And many people took that to mean you have to respond militarily. And mm -hmm. I think we've kind of backed away from that and said, no, you don't have to go into Ukraine and fight for those people. Um, you can instead just open your borders and bring right. them in. Help where you can. Yeah. Where you can. Okay. Yeah. What are, what are the chances, Joan, that you think this moves beyond Ukraine? There's been some concern that this is the beginning of a march from Putin through parts of easily takeable or easily conquerable, um, other countries in Europe. I, um, I think there's a very good chance of that. And, no. and oh, I'm, I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> that scares Unfortunately, me. because and 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 what oh. we're ta targeting here are the Baltic states, which were part of the former Soviet Union. So that's the most likely. Um, indeed, I think that only about 17 percent of people in Ukraine say they are ethnically Russians. Whereas in Latvia and Estonia, it's closer to 25%. So if you, you might recall that Putin initially said he had to go to Ukraine to protect Russians. Well, everybody proved that to be untrue, right. that Russians were not being threatened there. And um, so now his argument is we had to go there for national security reasons to protect Russia itself. But I think the Baltic states are another area and as I said, um, I think there would be a war there. And indeed, this is where NATO is moving a lot of its troops right now, moving brigades where to Poland and and these Baltic republics. Um, you know, the U.S. is sending additional troop buildups. Right. So that's where we may see more of a military response. Perhaps right. this continues. OK, right, right. Um, Joan, I asked you or I sent you this question on email ahead of time, too, and I don't want to get too, too off. Okay. Topic, but it is something that I thought about because you it feels like China and mm -hmm. Russia are BFFs and it feels like China is probably watching very closely what the U.S. does and does not do in regards to the situation. Yeah. So how, if at all, does our response or our lack of response in the U.S. potentially impact our relations and our future with China? OK, I, I don't think that. China and Russia are BFFs. Well, they are. I think. I think both the parties are hanging out in the corner, Joan, and they're scoping out the girls, and they're kind of competitive. You know, they're kind of trying to get the same. I think both. kind of. I think both Putin and Xi are very self-interested. Okay. And they're both very interested in securing their own power, their own authoritarian power within their own authoritarian state. I think Russia is very different than China. Russia is a declining power. It's it's the superior by far it's a superior military power to China, but its economy is in decline. And it's really its only export is 
oil and gas. Some people refer to it as a petrostate. China, by contrast, is a rising power. It's got its Belt and Road Initiative. It's increasingly trying to influence other states to invest in other countries. It's a rising economic power. And so China is more interested in, in some ways, in behaving well on the world stage so that it are following a certain number of rules on the world stage. It believes that you should not interfere in one another's countries, but behaving well, at least because it's benefiting right now from global trade and global right. finance. Right. So also, I believe both leaders personally um, and then the governments are very self-interested. And to that extent, I think China's response has been interesting. It has neither condemned Russia for this, nor has it supported Russia. It's made like ambiguous statements about, well, every country's sovereignty and territorial integrity and national security should be respected. Well, are we talking about Russia's or Ukraine's here, right? So they're definitely speaking out both sides of their mouth here. Um, however, I think China knows that this is an opportunity for them to extend their influence, especially in the Indo-Pacific, because, well, if you go back to George Herbert Walker Bush, um, the first President Bush, there was the feeling that at the end of the Cold War, we should pivot to Asia and focus on China, the growing power. That got disrupted. Um, then, you know, again, George W. Bush wanted to pivot to China. Well, 9-11 happened. Mm. Um, President Obama hoped to do that. Well, he too was just kind of mucked down in Iraq and then Syria. Uh, Biden wants to do it, right? you know, pivot to China. This is what all the national security advisors, whether you're talking about, you know, Susan Rice or Condoleezza Rice, they talked about for decades now. So there's this awareness that we need to be in China. Well, China's or in the Indo-Pacific, which China sees as its sphere of influence and it doesn't want the United States there. Well, China's sitting there saying, oh, goody, goody. The U.S. has to pay attention to Europe right now and Russia's paying attention to Europe. So I can do what I want here in the Indo-Pacific. I can't, you know, because the U.S. was sending additional fleets there. Also, some of our allies like Australia were sending additional fleets. Japan, you know, um, who's participating in the sanctions against Russia was sending, you know, was building up its military, some its defense force. Technically, it has a defense force. So I think that what... Putin is doing is going to distract world attention, which enables China to pursue its own interest more. And indeed, there is this kind of interesting question about, you know, does the U.S. keep its commitments? Are its commitments credible? What are its commitments in the region to Japan, to the Philippines, to South Korea, and most fundamentally to Taiwan, which has a much 
lower status and more ambiguous status on the world stage than a country like Ukraine, right? So yeah. this is an opportunity for China, which has become more assertive in the um, South Asia, South China Sea and East China Sea, and more assertive about having a deep water Navy and controlling those waterways. This is an opportunity while the U.S. is distracted to make gains in that area. If you're trying to, Joan, the two guys at the party are working together. You may not I don't think so, because China's not going to share anything with Putin. No, that's interesting. And Joan, I would love to have you on to talk about China specifically. And, and mm-hmm. their, like you said, their growing sphere of influence and the controversies lately with the people refusing to speak up about the Uyghur genocide and what we should and shouldn't do to, you know, assert ourselves, Mm -hmm. how quickly there, I, I, we should do that. I mean, I'm pretty much booking your schedule for (laughs) that. Sorry. We don't have to, if you don't want to, but I mean, as, as a overthinker in general, I spend way too much time for a normal Jane thinking about what China's influence will be on the future of the yes. world stage. And if my children will be drafted into a war to fight mm-hmm. whatever potential ills and evils are coming, but that could just be me. And that could be the caffeine talking, but I feel like there are so many things at play here. I'm really grateful that you took okay. time to kind of help us put the puzzle together. Okay. So thank you so, thank so much. You. Thank and you. And we'll so ask you one more thing before we go. Just, this is, has, this okay. can be a but it is something that was reflected in, like I said, my conversations with friends born in other places is the era of America as the world's policeman or police chief over. Should it be? And is it? I think that um, it's been over. Yes. I think it was, you know, President Trump ended it in a way far more so than President uh, Biden. I think if you go back to President Nixon in the 70s, he was the first one to talk about retrenchment and, you know, leaving Vietnam, even though it was not a victory. Um, So I think, yes, and the American public, um, even when we think about, uh, you know, the genocide in Rwanda or genocides in Bosnia, the American public didn't want to go there. So this is very difficult that, uh, you know, I think that the the American public um, doesn't see us as a global policeman and questions that role. Now, mm-hmm. what what I think is important is that, and again, I think this is something that Congress needs to do a better job with, and they need to talk to each other. We need to identify what are our existential interests, what are our vital interests, what are our significant interests, what are our peripheral. Where are we willing to send the military and where aren't we? Now, you might not want to announce that to the world because then you invite, like, you know, action if you say we're not going there. However, there needs to be some kind of agreement about this so that we are assembling the correct resources, the correct kind of military resources, the correct force compositions, um, the correct deployments abroad. So there needs to be a discussion and agreement upon that. I think President Biden, what he had said was he is not going to be the global policeman or global leader. He wants to be a global partner. 
That was his language very clearly. So, and I think that's what he's trying to do here with respect to Ukraine. He could get the NATO allies to reach certain agreements. And, you know, if the U.S. sanctioned Russia alone, it would be meaningless if they could buy things or trade things with Europe. So it really has to be in partnership. And yes, I believe that the U.S. as the global policeman, those days are over. Um, They're also over because nobody wants a draft anymore, right? Right. No, it's a volunteer. A volunteer. It's just like I, I, it worries me. But I, it's a really interesting question, Joan. You know, because the you know the the patriot in me is in conflict with the mother in me. So that well, just made me step back a little bit. Yes, I. And I, then I, you know, prior to prior to the President Trump's administration, generally, if you fought for the, you know, we there were non-citizens who fought in U.S. wars. People from, for example, the Dominican Republic or Mm -hmm. Mexico who came, joined the U.S. military, fought in wars abroad because they were supposed to get citizenship afterwards. Right. Under President Trump, we stopped that because people didn't want migration, you know, from the southern hemisphere. So Mm, I think I think that, you know, people who are willing and loyal to the idea of America can't become citizens, even when they go and fight for these interests. And, you know, it used to be the case if we go back to the 50s and 60s, something that bound the people in Congress together was they had all been in the military and had a similar kind of socialization. And that's basically gone, you know, so whether we want to talk about a draft or you know, another topic for you, some kind of universal service to the country in daycares or nursing homes or something for all 18 or 19 or 20 year olds. Um, You know, it does create a kind of socialization and common purpose and loyalty to community. So that's true. Oh, gosh, that's that's (laughs) an interesting topic. We will have you back. Joan, um, thank you again. I I talked to you for so much longer, but I don't want to steal too much more of your time. Okay. This is the part of the interview where we typically ask people if you have a website or a book or a social media account you want to promote. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners where they can check out more of your work or connect with you? Oh, gee. I do have a website connected to the Rollins. So if you go to the political science department at Rollins.edu. Awesome. Okay. Joan, thank you so much. Have a wonderful right. day. Thank you.